Hey, this is John Willis again. I've got uh, another uh, uh, Deming Profound podcast guest, and uh, this this one this guest is uh, like pr- pretty fascinating. I've been really sort of happy at these the people I'm finding in in the IT industry, but sort of outside the IT industry. And and uh, John, you want to introduce yourself? Thank you, John. Uh, this is interesting. We got two John Ws. John Willis, yeah, John Warnick. Right. That's the first for me. So that's cool. But yes, I am John Warnick. I am the uh, CEO and co-founder of a company called Have Blue, uh, and uh, background is uh, automotive, aerospace, and particularly with respect to today, systems engineering and what I call total quality performance. And I've been very fortunate to work with, I'll call it the holy trinity of the, the quality gurus, uh, uh, Dr. Deming, who we'll certainly talk about. Uh, back in 1992, I had a chance to meet with him and work with him, and uh, Professor Jeff Liker, from the University of Michigan, probably what I would call the father of the Toyota Way, taking Deming's principles and applying lean product and process development to that. And then also, uh, you know, uh, General Bill Creech, a United States Air Force general, who was author of Total Quality Management, learned quite a bit from him where we actually use the Deming Way and a lot of the lean principles and apply those to motorsports at General Motors. So uh, thanks to the late uh, Dr. Bill, or General Bill Creech, I've uh, learned quite a bit. So I'm going to call it kind of, I'll call it the Warniak way because I'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of great people. So I mentioned those three because those are probably the three most profound knowledge experts that I've ever come across when it comes to total quality performance. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, we had, we had talked earlier and, um, you know, it was introduced by um, some of the, the folks that do a lot of research and, and it was just, I was saying how sort of, I was just looking for a general history of autonomous vehicles and I sort of hit the jackpot with you. Um, the, um, I guess the first thing, and I, I try to ask this to most of my guests, like, you know, the, 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 the podcast is called Profound based on sort of Deming's profound system of yeah. knowledge. And then like, so the question then, like I'm trying to get to is, what do you see, you know, sort of your, and we'll delve into the different pieces, but like, what is Deming's impact today, in your opinion? I, I really think, you know, as I mentioned, the Holy Trinity, he was the father. He was the start of all this, you know, going back to post-World War II, building Japan into the, the mega powerhouse and economic powerhouse that it is today. And his, his ideas and principles really took hold in Japan because they were starting anew. And, uh, you know, a lot of the not invented here syndrome, things that uh, are certainly part of uh, developing total quality performance. Uh, arguably, the United States and other countries uh, had their ways of doing things, and uh, they were not the best, but they were tradition. And along comes Dr. Deming. And uh, again, you mentioned profound knowledge. I remember him always saying, uh, profound knowledge can only come from somewhere else. If you keep talking to the same people, mm get the same types of processes and products. So profound knowledge has to come from, what well, I don't know, words, outside the system. And that's really what he was always talking about, uh, continuous learning. And a lot of the new words we have for today, but he really started that in the mid-40s. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's fascinating what he did, you know, the sort of economic miracle in Japan. And But I, I thought what was really fascinating is that, oh, well, the, everything's sort of fascinating um, about Deming and then certainly your sort of journey, um, which we'll go into, but um, I thought it was fascinating. There was the, you know, that, that documentary on NBC, right. Which is if Japan can, why can't we? And then, you know, as the story goes and like, there's, 
the sort of edges of folklore, but you know, you sort of take the narratives that sound the best, but, but the uh, president Ford Mode is sort of was enlightened by seeing that invited Deming into Ford. Um, uh, apparently one of the first projects was the Ford Taurus with Deming, but um, there were people at General Motors who were aware of Deming's work and, and really wanting to sort of do things. And you had told me a story that, that apparently at some point the question came to you like, you know, how long would it take to sort of manifest Deming's ideas? And that started sort of a big part of your career, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my background, uh, I grew up in the Motor City, an area which is known as Porktown in uh, Detroit, and uh, never wanted anything to do with automotive. My <laughs> heart, I loved racing. I used to uh, rummage the, go out on garbage day on Mondays and look for an old Briggs and Stratton with a horizontal shaft, oh, a wagon, washing machine, throw pulley on there and a fan belt to make motorized wagons. So I loved racing. I got involved in motocross, but didn't want anything to do with the automotive industry and uh, just loved aircraft. So uh, I got a chance to go to the University of Michigan engineering school and graduate school at the University of Illinois. And my background, what I focused on was fatigue and fracture mechanics, why things break. So really kind of an introduction to the systems approach. And, uh, and within that, got uh, lured into the NSA um, and then through Northrop ended up on the B-2 bomber program. Uh, so I never uh, finished my master's, but not my PhD at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And I got pulled into the, uh, the whole world of uh, the stealth bomber and stealth fighter. Uh, and hence is the name of my company. Have Blue was one of the code words for the F-117 stealth fighter. So I trademarked that about 20 years ago. And uh, so Have Blue is all about technology demonstration and uh, problem solving and bringing that to light. And that's really what total quality performance is as well. Doing it uh, to eliminate the waste, and it and it builds on a lot of a lot of principles. But uh, coming from uh, the NSA, when General Motors purchased Hughes Aircraft, I was selected to lead a team of 100 program managers and system engineer engineers from aerospace at Hughes and Northrop to General Motors, and uh, that's the story that you mentioned. So, 1986, we developed the Sun Racer to demonstrate systems engineering within uh, General Motors. And we won that race now in Australia. And then by, I think, 87 or so, uh, 88, uh, the, the SAC, Security Exchange Commission, allowed the uh, deal to go through where General Motors purchased Hughes Aircraft uh, from Hughes Medical. And one, I had a, a direct line to the General Motors management and a direct line to the Hughes Aircraft management. And it was a gentleman uh, at uh, General Motors named Don Runkle. Uh, he was my boss at General Motors. And he said, uh, my nickname was Radar as well, <laughs> not for MASH, but he had, uh, some of the folks seemed to think that I knew what was coming in terms of engineering. So anyway, I took it. Uh, anyway, uh, we kind of ran with it, and he said, uh, well, how long will systems engineering take to teach at General Motors? And I said, it takes three generations. Again, back to Dr. Dim. First generation to teach it to all the engineers. Second generation to measure it against the new baseline. And third, to institutionalize it. So it becomes a way of life. So he says, we don't have 15 years because the product development cycle uh, within General Motors and overall industry at the time is five years. That's 60 months. In racing, it's arguably six to 12 months, one year. So he said, I'm sending you to motorsports to demonstrate that this works. And I'm giving you three years, the three generations. And he, and he grabbed me by the tie since we wore ties back then. <laughs> and he said, uh, Radar, 
I'm sending you to motorsports to get inoculated, not to die from the disease. <laughs> we need this profound knowledge back into production. So you got three years, the clock started, and uh, we developed some of the most uh, fantastic milestones to date. Uh, we won the uh, what's called the, uh, the Triple Challenge, uh, IndyCar, NASCAR Championships, IMSA, uh, Le Mans. It was crazy. We, we, there wasn't much we couldn't do once the process got institutionalized in motorsports. And then we spread it out across all what we call the platforms. So we put kind of like Noah's Ark, we put two systems engineers and a program manager on each of the platforms at General Motors. And we developed an Obeya room, which is basically the quality room, and where these people live and pulled in all the platform management. And uh, that was the beginning of a lot that took off uh, at General Motors. But that was early 90s. Uh, you, you mentioned Ford. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Lou Veraldi that was the father of the first Taurus back in 86. He was the first guy to really implement systems thinking in the auto industry. And that credit goes to Ford. And when you say system thinking, you're basically sort of not exclusively Deming, but certainly a big part of Deming's. Absolutely. Yeah. Deming paves the way for systems thinking. I credit uh, uh, Dr. Peter Sengen. Yeah. So that was something interesting we talked about, too, is that when you moved over to motorsports, particularly racing, you said that. Um, you actually got advice from Deming and Peter Senge related to some of the practice, particularly like the feedback loop concept, right? A- absolutely. And, and, and kind of like the Hoshin, the goal, the big, the big picture. Uh, so when you think of the Kaizen for the, the process improvement, a lot of the Toyota way principles, definitions of the Deming way. Uh, when I was at Northrop and Northrop won the contract for the B2 bomber, uh, we had a small group of about 80 of us around the design team. And Northrop Management, this is before Northrop Grumman, uh, was very, very conscious to the fact that this was not just betting the pig, this was betting the entire farm. Right. Yeah. So they sent uh, 16 of us to Caltech for a two-year program on systems engineering and systems thinking. And Peter Senge was the nucleus of that, and a lot of the professors at the time. So uh, basically, uh, organizational learning, systems thinking, the fifth discipline. Uh, shared vision, all those types of, I'm going to call them engineering principles, built around the Deming way. And that became the Bible, if you will, for what we disseminated across Northrop and that I brought from Hughes to General Motors. And certainly the motorsports. And then you would tell the story about the multi-team, the the sort of multi, the multi the, how sort of the that whole thing possibly came from system thinking and system engineer, the, how you, the, the two teams and like you get more feedback, you know, that a race. Absolutely. Yeah. And I credit a lot of people, as I mentioned, and uh, I'm not name dropping. Uh, Neil Young and Peter or, and uh, Roger Penske told me never to name drop. <laughs> the point <laughs> is, uh, and I'm, I'm mentioning people because, as I mentioned, I'm sitting on their shoulders. Right. Uh, about 1990, 91, we developed a quality function deployment, house of quality within our Obeya, our war room at General Motors. And we went through all the motorsports programs. And a leading team at the time was Rick Hendrick with Hendrick Motorsports down in Charlotte. And he really believed in this, th- these things we were doing. And he had a great disciple. Uh, Randy Dorton was the, the, the person that I kind of worked with at uh, Hendrick Motorsports. Randy was the disciple for systems engineering within Hendrick Motorsports. We did some great things together. And the, the tradition, the conventional wisdom at the time was, 
one car per team owner. Rick Hendrick, uh, wherever the other teams may be at Ford, or Toyota, wherever they were. So I said, you know, if you take organization and learning, Rick to Rick Hendrick, we could have a multi-car team, a two or three car team. He said, oh, no, 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 no. They, they, they'll, they'll, they'll just be competitors to one another. And I said, Rick, how many tire tests do we get a year? And this was NASCAR at the time. He said, um, two per race. So like 50 tire tests. I said, okay, now we have, with two teams, we have 100 tire tests. So team A goes and does a setup for this tire combination. Team B goes and does another setup with another combination. When the race starts, we take the best of both. Then it's every race for themselves, you know, team for themselves. So, wow, the organizational learning took off mostly from that perspective. And today, there's very few teams that have less than one car, two cars. So they they pretty much uh, know the organizational learning and and they pass that on to everybody else. That was a great example. And you said, like, when they start the race, it's it's that sort of binary thinking, right? They were thinking, oh, no, we can't do this, John. And what what somebody didn't sort of tease out is you can do it up to the start of the race. You just absolutely don't do it after the race. Yeah, yeah. Again, and I'll go back to, to Dr. Deming and you know preparation, or again with uh, Dr. Deming and others, and with the Toyota way would call and Dr. Liker particularly would call Nima washing, which is the preparation. So mm-hmm. you never get a chance to race at 100 percent, as I like to say. You have to handle all the things you know you don't know up to the race. And then you start with that baseline, and then as the race unfolds, it's a totally different strategy because you're in real time. It's almost like the just-in-time theory going on today at race pace, which is, you know, 10 times production pace. But all those things you can learn and know ahead of time, it's not what you think is going to happen. It's what you know is going to happen as the race unfolds. And as you build up that tribal knowledge, that knowledge base, you can pretty much understand. I mean, Roger Penske, Rick Hendrick. Uh, Coach Gibbs, uh, there's so many teams that are great at doing that and understanding how the race will unfold and which direction they'll take. So they have a strategy set and then their tactics unfold, but um, they're, they're masters at it. And that applying that into the production world is really where I think we're at what I call kind of the next generation of total quality performance. Yeah, and to me, that when you told me the story the, the first time, that it seems like it's the you know racing was the ultimate go to Gemba, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's so, you know, like it's a, it, it, you know, the whole point is the race as opposed to designing a car over a longer period of time. And then, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it isn't always the fastest team that wins. It's the smartest team, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how everything's unfolded. And, you know, basically companies race for three reasons. One, to solve problems. Two, demonstrate technology, both of those on the world stage. And third, to inspire the next generation. Mm-hmm. So for all the STEM and STEAM and total quality performance students coming along, they take the Deming principles, the Liker principles, and the Preach principles, apply them through the systems engineering of today, and that's how we ended up with a lot of these autonomous vehicles. Uh, you could not take the technology that we have today and even hypothesize what it would have been 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Because all that started with the DARPA challenge, the DARPA Grand Challenge, then the DARPA Urba Challenge, and in two weeks from today, we'll have the first Indy Autonomous Challenge. So we couldn't have predicted that if we wanted to. So imagine that. And we're going to, we're going to talk about that a little bit, but the, the idea that you're, you're running an autonomous in Indianapolis raceway autonomous, like I, I definitely want to get back to that. The one other story I thought was fascinating. So the, the, I think they're like, you said, shoulder of giants, like, you know, 
we, we carry all these sort of tools of what we learn. And I thought the story of that, you said there was, um, and I, I, you know, like I watch racing from afar, so I'll apologize, but um, there was a, a major accident in Watkins Glen. And, and I think the combination, the way you thought about from aircraft to sort of the bomber to you did like some fascinating stuff out of that sort of. Yeah. I am glad you mentioned that, Donald. Pardon me for one second. Sure. Uh, back in the day, uh, it was Tommy Kendall that you think of. was a racer. And we had an IMSA car, IMSA GTP, Grand Touring Prototype. Uh, and he was racing at Watkins Glen. It's a road course. And there's one turn called the bus stop. So he kind of missed the turn. And the vehicle went across the grass. And I think it was about 50, 60 feet of grass. So he left the track at about 120 miles an hour, skidded across the grass, and hit a bunch of tires. And so basically, we had no idea with the G-forces were on his heart, his helmet, the car. So he used ESPN footage and backtracked everything. And by the way, his uh, his ankles were just shattered, blown apart, 150 pieces in his ankles. So that's the force that he hit straight into the wall. He actually bounced off and hit it again with the back and got another, uh, what we call a second collision. But basically, we had no way of understanding what his body and what the car went through. So I knew that through the F-16s and F-18s that we'd worked on at my aerospace background, that there was something called like an event data recorder. And in the shipping industry, when they ship something from uh, overseas, they had a, like a pretty big box on it to see what happened to that container as it went on for you know, quality and insurance reasons. So anyway, I said, why don't we put an event data recorder on a race car so that we, we can record the G-forces? So anyway, through back extrapolation, we found out that Tommy Kendall went through probably 60 Gs when he decelerated into that wall. And that was thanks to Dr. Terry Trammell at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway that discovered a lot of that. And he was a, a trauma surgeon and uh, an orthopedic surgeon. So he understood the mechanics of the, of the body, particularly the spinal column and all that kind of stuff. So we ended up ended up developing these event data recorders. Mm. These are on every race car today. Back to 1993 with IndyCar, since then, and 2002 in NASCAR. So when a vehicle hits the wall, everything is recorded. And by the way, John, this is on your car, too. Yeah, I was going to get that. The one thing I did want to, like, if my notes are correct, you, uh, it sounded like you literally went to, like, you know, instead of sort of going into one of those long engineering processes, you literally grabbed some of the black box technology from, like, an F-16. and then Absolutely. Uh, same great. thing. And, uh, and if you know, and, uh, and and again, you don't have to recreate or reinvent, but you do have to innovate. And yeah. uh, and as you say, Genji Gambutsu going to the front line, racing gave us the opportunity to go to the shelf, if you will. And you think of offerings to the gods of speed, all the stuff on top, mm-hmm. all the things on that next shelf are offerings to the gods of safety, et cetera. So you could pick and choose. And I can tell you one story. We were with Roger Penske and Rick Mears in um Marina Del Rey, California, a huge headquarters, and going through all the stuff on the shelf. One of them was a helicopter's uh, on his goggle, a heads-up display, so mm-hmm. that he could track where his guns were aimed while he where he was looking. The pilot or sheet. Well, we decided to take that because Rick Mears crashed as well, just like Tommy Kendall. We wanted to put a heads-up display on the inside of his visor of his helmet at the IndyCar. So Roger said, "Can we do that?" Done. So we put a heads-up display. Rick went on to win the pole position as well as the race that year. And um, but we ended up with heads-up displays on vehicles. 
as well as a lot of the other things, literally off the shelf yeah. from aerospace through motorsports into production. And right now, you know, the, the production Corvette has a heads up display today. Oh, wow. And, and then sort of the segue that to that original conversation is like, you got three years, John, and then like, I want this back internal motors. So that, that little sort of device you just showed me that said that's in my car, like, was that, that was the start of like OnStar, right? In a sense, or? Oh, absolutely. The telemetry and the recording. Absolutely. You know, when you think about it, uh, you, you know, John Willis and John Warnick, we own the data that's on the event data. Group. Right. But, you know, but a law enforcement agency or something like that, they certainly want that. You think of the, uh, the fire with uh, Romain uh, Groshan uh, in Formula One last October, uh, the crash with uh, uh, Ryan Newman at uh, uh, the Daytona 500 last year. Those those people are alive today because of the things we learned through the forces and all the other momentum and things we learned from these, and, and particularly the G-forces. But you take that, extrapolate that into you know someone that everybody here knows, uh, our golfer friend, Tiger Woods. The very first thing that the LA County Sheriff's uh, went for after he crashed his uh, Hyundai Kia in uh, Torrance, California, Palo Alto, uh, was the black box to make sure that he, you know, he had his hands on the wheel, was he speeding, whatever. And he was totally vindicated. Uh, yeah. The car did everything it was supposed to, and it saved his life. And that's Tiger Woods. So, uh, so this this progresses not just the racers, but everyone in the car, including your eye and everyone listening in today. Yeah, I think that, you know, that idea that like what you learn from racing into things like sort of General Motors on Star, because that was a big deal when, you know, as a sort of consumer, you know, that the, the sort of that that in a car, I think, was the linchpin to a lot of other things that we have today, like you just described, like not only the black box, but probably the start of sort of digitalization of vehicles, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Digital. You mentioned like OnStar. OnStar was the first to uh, to really bring telemetry to the forefront. Uh, what I'll call the connected car. So we have connected, we have electrification, and autonomous driving, automated driving. So those are the three big, big ones. Mm-hmm. OnStar was the first in the connected vehicle arena where you could connect your phone to the vehicle. Uh, so if you got in a crash, it called the authorities, you know, right. to help the first responders automatically, that type of thing. And that was, you know, that was put on the vehicles. Gosh, they were the leaders in that for 10 years. Ford came out with Ford Sync, uh, which was much more of a safety plus entertainment. So it's continued to evolve ever since. And now with 5G, it's basically uh, your phone tracks you, your GPS, uh, so all the information. So so much more safety advocacy through what's happened in the mobility world, you know, by bringing phones into the car. Yeah, no, brilliant. And then you had mentioned the DARPA, like there's two stories like this. um, You had talked about, I don't know in what order, but there was the um, Caltech, like they did this um, sort of, prototypical Buick uh, autonomous. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When you, when you think about this, you know, it's like, how did we get it? You know, the best way to, to be an overnight success is to start 10 years ago, right? <laughs> so so with Hughes Aircraft, uh, General Motors took the lead. Uh, let's see, it was uh, Bechtel Engineering, big construction, you know, in California, worldwide as well, built the Hoover Dam. So Bechtel, Lockheed Martin, uh, Hughes, we got together. And in 1997, we uh, embedded uh, magnetic sensors, if you will, along the La Jolla Freeway outside of San Diego for about a 15-mile strip. So eight Buicks could actually be driven hands-free and staying in their lanes along that stretch of freeway in San Diego. That was 1997. And a lot of that was learned from Hughes Aircraft experience with air traffic control and runways and things like that. And, uh, 
concerned with Bechtel's uh, construction engineering, et cetera. There was so much to be learned, but it was way, way out in front of its time. I mean, 97, gosh, we were, right. no one was even thinking about that kind of stuff then. But, uh, but again, kudos to General Motors and the other automakers for taking the lead in developing uh, those vehicles at the time. And then um, you had mentioned earlier about some of the DARPA challenges. Because the other thing, too, I think, you know, like Tesla didn't just pop out of nowhere, right? There was a lot of, like you said, you want to be in success, start 10 years, or like, you know, you know, um, to all their credit, um, I mean, there was sort of a lot of the things that you could pick up on. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I think some of the DARPA, like the public, the DARPA stuff that was being. Oh, yeah. yeah. When you think when DARPA, the DARPA challenge started 2005, it was nothing more than, at the time, most people call it a science project. And let's go out in the desert and see if cars can drive themselves. And I think one of the first cars in the desert challenge, uh, one of the, the first races, was, the course was set up for something like 140 miles. Of all the entries, not one vehicle made it more than eight miles. They were crashing off, you know, mm. seeing this and going off. So, so the automated driving just wasn't perfected back then. But again, it was a journey. Problem solve, demonstrate technology, and learn for the next generation. A lot of those people that are involved, Sebastian Thrun, Anthony Lewandowski, uh, Argo, the folks from Argo, all those, all those, I'll call them kids at the time, those are our leaders today. Mm-hmm. The folks that helped jumpstart Tesla and all the others, particularly Google XCar, Sebastian, Anthony, so many other greats uh, that, you know, came out of that world. It's the same thing with today with kids at the India Autonomous job that are basically 18 to 24 years old, around the world, 500 students, uh, 20 universities. It's amazing what these these kids are doing. And uh, they're not afraid of the autonomy. They've got that figured out. Yeah, they sort of grew up on that, right? So this is not like for us or, you know, like we stick back and still... So they, they want to know how to turn off the ADAS mode, advanced driver assistance, <laughs> and get into the race mode. So they're they're talking to drivers like Scott Dixon and J.R. Hildebrand and saying, okay, I'm in turn one. I'm 20 feet behind the guy in front of me, the car in front of me. Uh, when do I turn off ADAS and turn on race mode? And do I make my move? <laughs> and when do I turn ADAS back on? That's all that so give us the complete, give us the, the, the long version of the India Autonomous Race. It's actually coming up in like a week from now. Yeah, and uh, October 23rd uh, at the Brickyard, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, right now, there's probably at least 11 cars that will be in the field. Uh, I want to—I don't want to oversell it, but, uh, basically, but it's a technology demonstration. Again, caution when you think about the DARPA challenges. But nonetheless, it's a million-dollar prize. It will be awarded to the winner. There will be a winner on the 23rd and demonstrating the autonomous uh, capabilities of these cars. And again, it's pretty easy, relatively easy, I would say, to take a car and do 100 miles an hour around a racetrack, autonomous car. To put a, you know another car or much less 10 cars out there and all the dynamics of what we call extreme edge cases that go along with that, that's the challenge. And to demonstrate that, what, a, what basically what an autonomous vehicle can do, and more importantly to the public and to consumers, what an autonomous vehicle cannot do. So it'll really be that first benchmark for the industry to demonstrate the capabilities and the extreme edge cases. Uh, good example in IndyCar racing, uh, just before the championship, uh, Colton Hurdle was leading the race at Laguna Seca about a month ago. What jumped out on the track? A rabbit. <laughs> mm, yeah. so a rabbit runs across the track, hits his front wing, 
didn't cause much damage, some damage, but he was able to at least finish the race and win the race. There's no way you're going to program a rabbit running into an autonomous vehicle at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So you have billions of algorithms, if you will, that has to go through the process thinking, the artificial intelligence. But you've got to be able to discern something like that. Do you um, do you avoid it? Do you hit it? Those types of things. So extreme edge cases like that yeah. in racing, the Gemba, Genchi Gambutsu, go to the front lines, the place of action is the fastest place to learn yeah. those extreme edge cases and apply them to production. And I want to caution reader, under, uh, people listening in today as well and viewing this. It's not about taking the driver out of the loop. We'll always have someone like Takuma Sato or uh, I mentioned Scott Dixon at the racetrack. They'll be in the seat. That's racing. That's part of what racing is all about, particularly at the 500. This is about what a car is capable of doing and not capable of doing. That's what we're learning. It's no different than Henry Ford when he went out of the ice at Gross, <laughs> Gross Point, Gross Isle here in Detroit, Michigan, and demonstrated what a horseless carriage could do in the early 1900s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I love about the story. And I think most of the, uh, the people who listen to this sort of already got that point, what I was sort of not making the, the point, which is um, – the same point of when you, you know, you were asked to go into motorsports, which was like all of this creates the better knowledge for the future and the autonomous race, although is exciting and interesting and, and sort of jumps out in your face, like, Oh my goodness, what's that going to be like? Mm-hmm. Um, you, your point is it's just an extension of what you did years ago, which is you're going to Gamber. I mean, you're learning um, like where you are, where this, you know, again, we can have these autonomous vehicles, you know, the stories of, you know, sort of prototypes from Google, you know, driving around the city for a whole day. Um, but, you know, if you really want to learn what these kings, I'm just repeating what you said, oh, like, put, put 11 cars together, 100 miles an hour, making hard turns. And um, then like now you really learn, you know, what exactly. it can and can't do. Exactly. And you got to get out and do it. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of the old expression. Fail fast, and learn from it. It's better than waiting and waiting and waiting. And that's kind of the systems engineering equivalent of configuration management. If you wait to get everything perfect, you're going to be too late. Right. So the point is get out and try and try, keep trying and try in parallel to move it along. So you take, you pick the base of Demingway and then you know, I'll call the Six Sigma tools and the Black Belt tools. Combine those with value stream mapping and lean product and process development. And you end up with I'll call it the Creech way, the total quality management. Apply that at the Gemba. Apply it to fast-paced problem solving. You end up with total quality performance. And, you know, I think for uh, people listening, you know, I, I'd asked you this last time, you know, in the context of, um, so I'd ask you sort of part A, part B. So one of the contexts of what I asked is, so I live in Atlanta. There's a couple of like crazy spaghetti junctions where you have to merge into the left on like I-85 or I-75. And, you know, I think I, that was sort of, the, this would really be the part B question, but, um, you know, like when do we see like sort of a reasonable um, implementation of autonomous vehicles that like we feel safe and that's happening. But I guess the, the, the part A is um, in this first race, those sort of complicated things from a novice perspective of watching races, like getting behind a car and seeing, you know, getting in their drift and knowing when to sort of turn, like, how much of that are we going to see? In, in- uh, I think we're going to see uh, level four and five autonomy. Uh, certainly level five, SAE level five is you know full autonomy, hands-off driving, okay. sitting in the backseat and uh, reading a book while you're 
<laughs> okay. We're gonna. You probably won't see that in your driveway for a while. I say ten years. Where you will see it is in fleets. You know, there are fleets already doing that with some of the other you know, Uber driving, uh, certain select cities, and certain uh, geofenced areas. Mm-hmm. The person in Michigan, Ann Arbor, has an area called M City, which is a 35 acre site, pretty much an autonomous village. So autonomous vehicles are running around there, uh, pretty safely have been for years. Uh, there's other vehicles and different levels of connectivity out on the streets with the smart traffic and some of the embedded roadways, et cetera. So we're seeing a lot of that happen. But you do have level, you know, I'll call it level two plus in your driveway today. Uh, Toyota Safety Sense, uh, GM Super Cruise, uh, Ford Blue Cruise, all those, Ford Sync, uh, all those. There's so many uh, great uh, level two pushing. I don't want to say three because three is where you hand off back to the driver. So level four, the vehicle is driving itself. Level two, you're driving with assistance. Level three, that handoff is the most dangerous. So most OEMs, automakers, and suppliers are jumping from level two to level four. So they're skipping level three because that handoff is so dangerous. Why, why is this from a layman perspective? Why is the, the handoff dangerous? Because it's like uh, the car detects something like the squirrel. Okay. The, uh, rabbit running. You need to pay attention now. You, well, by the time your cognitive dissonance works, you know, hey, John, take control of the car now. It's too late. You've traveled the football field. This is some of the sort of not, you know, sort of the esoteric uh, conversations about um, fly, fly by wire in some of the, you know, sort of Airbuses and some of the accidents where, you know, that when they get into a situation, I think it was the Air France 447 was a great example of a. Exactly. And, and that's a great example. Another, we'll go back to aerospace, the 737 MAX. That was grounded from Boeing almost two years. That was an ADAS system. It was called basically the it was uh, augmented control was what Boeing had in that vehicle. But the pilot could not interact. Right. Kept trying to turn it off, but it couldn't. The vehicle kept thinking it was flying level when it wasn't. It was going into nose. So that that's where that level three autonomy needs to be surpassed. So you're going from keeping an eye in you know like the, the GM supercruise. It it tracks your eyes, so it knows if you're paying attention. Oh wow. Wow. So if you take your eyes off the road, it'll give you actually on GM space. It has a monitor on the steering wheel. So the old 10 and 2, like we learned to drive, mm-hmm. it's got a visual control right there. Wow. Again, Deming, forward and engine, visual. Are you paying attention? If not, a visual warning. If not, again, an audio warning. If not, an invasive maneuver. So, so is it fair to say that, um, you know, that, that sort of this whole journey of yours, and I mean, I know the answer, but that like you've never sort of lost sight of that system engineering principle that you got from your sort of Deming, your sort of your Trinity there, that, that it just, mm-hmm. it just like whether, who knows what's next, I can't even imagine, right? Uh, it, you know, it's like that you will just constantly be using these patterns because. It is, and, and, and I'm glad you said that, John, because systems engineering, systems thinking, has been my life. I always wondered why things broke. And usually it was profound input for somebody else that broke it. So mm-hmm. it kind of led me through that. But Peter Senge said something that was very profound as well. He said, you know, we're masters at taking things apart. Take a watch, take a car, take a boat, an airplane. We can take things apart. And then some people can put that boat, that car, that race car back together. Very few can put it back together better than the way they actually took it apart. That's what systems thinking is. So you put, you take what I call the content 
of that system and you put it in the context of where it operates. And that's where you bring the two together. And that's why systems engineering, systems engineering management, it, there's no end to it. It's, uh, it's like the Kano curve for quality. There's no end. It's a point of diminishing terms. It's like never reaches that diminishing equity. It's like, you know, kids can never be too cool. You can never have enough quality. There's no, there's no top. No, yeah. They're, they're, yeah. They're, it's just, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's sort of the, um, you know, I, I know we talked about like, it's sort of the one of, one of my favorite authors is based very close to you in the University of Michigan, Mike Rother, but sounds like you guys haven't worked together, but he, you know, you know, he calls it the true North and it's sort of like, it can be anything, but like, it's, you're just always going towards it. And, exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. I was, oh yeah, because it's uh, and in racing, uh, the, you know, the the race starts with or without you, but there's no end. The finish line. You won that race today. Yeah. What are you doing for the race next week? You won that championship. What's the next championship? And it keeps going. You know, you mentioned electrification, and, and along with autonomy, those are kind of the two biggest, I'd say, uh, disruptions in the auto industry today, and will carry on for the next two or three decades. But Electrification, particularly electric vehicle racing, is really taking hold. We got Formula E, Extreme E, and now in the States, King of the Hammers, which is becoming the new Baja, if you will, the new off-road performance, the coveted race, because it includes rock crawling. It's, it's arguably the toughest off-road vehicle race in the world. And it's in Johnson Valley, California, every January. And the first electric vehicle uh, to win that race will get a million dollars as well. And there's quite a few entries. Uh, you look at uh, Vehicles like the EV Hummer, zero to sixty in three seconds. The nine thousand pound vehicle, art. You know that's the art and style and uh, just beautiful engineering. But you got the Mach-E Mustang, you got the Lightning F one fifty. Yes, so much electrification taking place, and then down to the grassroots level, uh, a lot of these garage mechanics, SEMA type mechanics, are taking busted up Teslas and leaf battery. You know, once the vehicle gets out in an accident, taking out the motors and the inverters and the systems out of those electric vehicles and creating vehicles that can win the king of the hammers. Wow. So pretty cool stuff, Jeff. But the innovation in the systems engineering is is not going to stop in our lifetimes at all. Yeah, no, I, I had a few years ago, there was a conference where uh, a gentleman in technology was working for Jaguar and he gave a keynote and he, they had the uh, the first uh, Jaguar electric vehicle in, in sort of outside of the lecture hall. And he did a demo of pushing code to it and all. And I, I had gone, um, you know, I'd later, I, he, I was standing by the car and I'm like, I was sort of joking with him. I was like, Hey, you know, how do you win this? Is it a raffle? And he's like, yeah, right. And, I, I, and then he said, but I'll tell you what, John, if you uh, meet me at the end of the conference, I've got to take it out of the, so um, we basically, it was, uh, I got these crazy pitches. Like we drove the car through the conference, you know, the, um, because it was in the lobby and it had to go through the uh with the expo hall mm-hmm. so we literally drove through the expo hall to the um you know the, the the back sort of freight elevator uh but then he gave me a ride in and i think i don't remember my son knows all the numbers of every car but it, it had to be zero sixty 60 in um sort of under four seconds at least oh yeah, yeah and, that's- and i couldn't you know i can't imagine some of these cars that you talk about are like at two seconds or like the, oh yeah yeah the ludicrous mode with the tesla uh, the Mach yeah. E Mustang GT, uh, unbelievable. And you know, the four by E Jeep, you can go 30 miles of uh, pure electric power off roading. You no, know, particularly rock crawling, that's all about torque vectoring and you know, each wheel, uh, understanding all that really cool stuff. So it's coming a long way. I remember back in 2010 at the SEMA show, 
I invited Neil Young to bring his Link Bowl. He chose the biggest car he could find in 1959 Lincoln. Okay. Converted it to a hybrid. And I wanted him at the SEMA show to demonstrate literally what you could do with that type of thinking. And again, Neil's a very smart guy. He did almost all the work on the car himself. It's an, uh, wow. Some wow. Hot rod buddies and uh, things like that. But the systems you put together uh, with the batteries and the controller and the graphic display and all that stuff. But uh, that was, you know, he, he drove that car, the second version of that. 50,000 miles. Wow. Wow. So he was all over, up and down the country and Canada driving them. And he made a statement, again, very profound. We were walking through the SEMA show and he said, um, you know, all this technology that you see EVs and uh, electric vehicles and automated driving, it's not just for new cars. He said, an old car can take you to new places. And yeah, so yeah, no, I, I, you know, I mean, we can go on and on, but I, I do think a lot about that Soho aftermarket and what's going to happen with all these older cars and, you know, I think it gets easier to uh, sort of read Google or, you know, engineer. I think it'll be fascinating to see what people do sort of yeah. convert these old cars and these yeah. new technology. And, and you got some great believers, again, just just took, looking at the leadership. You know, the auto industry, I think electrification and automated driving were the two biggest disruptions that were hugely beneficial to the auto industry. If you look at the conventional industry, again, back to Denny's way and Profound knowledge can only come from somewhere else. All that technology came from somewhere else, arguably the aircraft industry. The electrification and the autonomous drive-by-wire or fly-by-order became drive-by-wire. Automated systems like uh, electronic stability control literally came off an aircraft, ended up on cars. Uh, Anti-lock brake systems, those came off aircraft, ended up on cars. All standard equipment today. And leaders like Jim Farley at Ford, Mark Rice at General Motors, Bob Carter at Toyota, uh, all these greats that are leading these companies, they understand the systems engineering and, and the Demi way, the Toyota way, uh, Ford one, all that uh, going forward. There's no doubt about it. it. But to have leaders that have that uh, understanding of content and context, that's why we're making such great progress. In the auto you know, it's funny. I think, you know, I guess this is more sort of a meta question, but um you know, I often I think I and let many people think about the cars and their competitive nature and it's all about money. But it, it sounds like from your view, a lot of it has been driven by the pure nature of making these this world safer. You know, not to be too Pollyannish, but sounds like that a lot of the people you work with who we would generally, you know, sort of general audience would think, oh, yeah, Toyota just wants to make more money because they'll do this. And Ford's going to. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought it up, John, because. Uh, Typically, 40,000 people are killed mm -hmm. on our U.S. freeways, highways, every year, which is totally unacceptable. That's like a 747 or a 737 crashing every two to three days, fully loaded with 200 passengers. That's totally, if that happened, we, you know, we wouldn't be flying. That's Yet right. we accept yeah. that on the highway, which is ridiculous. So, yes, lane departure warning, forward collision avoidance, rear view traffic cameras, all that has really advanced and pushed that curve down yet it's the distracted driving you know picking up your phone right texting right. things like that that's that's the problem so it's human behavior not the technology that's preventing us from getting to uh, what's basically zero tolerance and all that and, uh, the, the triple zero getting down to zero crashes because basically you want uh, cars that don't crash and devices that don't distract and powertrains that don't pollute yeah, that's, you know, a lot said, but, but it's but yeah, that's, that's about as, good, yeah, as concise as you can get, right? So, yeah. and um, we're, we're, moving, we're moving the needle towards it, but yes, safety. Uh, 
And you think about that the biggest there, thing there is not mechanical. Software is the new horseman. Right. Software performance and what about vehicle, uh, digital vehicle architectures. So we're going away from 100 computers. You know, a typical vehicle today has, believe it or not, 50 million to 100 million lines of software code. Your phone has about two, two million. So it's 50 times as much. Uh, an F-117 aircraft, today's Raptor, F-35, maybe five million lines of code. So think about it. There's 10 times as much in a car. So that's 10 times as much that can go wrong with all that software. Right. So the point is you're going from 100 computers on board and the software integrating those computers to one computer and one architecture makes it a lot safer, gets rid of a lot of the bugs and all the things that can go wrong. So, so that's where the industry is going, and that'll really be a, a big uh, tribute and leverage for safety for the drivers and the passengers and pedestrians. So um, you know, sort of partying, like, um, again, sort of tie it to what, why you think Deming is important, but or and or like you know, is there anything I missed that that you think is sort of given the context of what we've talked about that probably you know? Oh, by the way, yeah, Deming. I think Deming again, uh, and it truly is the, the nucleus of all this, the catalyst for it, because of the five whys. Continue asking why each time, and then you'll get to the answer, get to the root cause. Again, the, the Dr. Deming root cause it, and literally keep. Searching, always make a vision, learn to see, look for all the muda, as you call it, the waste. Mm-hmm. And it could be product waste, could be process waste, could be content waste, could be context waste, how things are used. So continue looking at that, that, that large uh, frontline goal of what you're trying to do. And you can always find ways to do it better. And then how it integrates with the rest of the system, or today's term ecosystem of all the how it fits in for Deming is certainly the father and the initiator of all of that. Yeah, this is great. No, I um, I think, you know, I, I'm going to say this to anybody who's listening, you know, I've had sort of goosebumps the whole conversation, so I have a feeling that there's a fair amount of people listening to this that are just fascinating by your sort yeah. of career, your understanding, and, you know, just your sort of, you know, being in this place, and it's just... Uh, Again, it's one of the bad podcasts that I've ever yeah, and, uh, and I think, you know, and again, things happening so quickly, uh, you know, the, the rate of the consumer adoption of these technologies, you know, took the refrigerator, the television 50 years to get to right. know, 90% <laughs> ubiquity. Look how fast the electric vehicles, look how fast mobile mobility, phones, smartphones took off. So we're going to get there very quickly. So I think we should do a post-mortem and say, let's revisit this conversation right. in a matter of months, uh, and certainly a year, and say, how far have we come in the last couple of months or quarter or next year for sure? Yeah, I'm going to definitely keep my eyes on the uh, the race. And then like, so I'd like to, so I think this idea of tracking this as sort of the learning tool and the system engineering approach and, and, and understanding, um, you know, how this space goes, I, I think there'll be great opportunities, you know, maybe later this year at the end of the year, we'll get you on another call and, and see, you know, what we learned. And, you know, just sort of extend the conversation. So Absolutely. And, and I think drilling down, you know, we, I think what we've done, we, we've created a snapshot. Mm-hmm. Now I think we can drill down on chapters. And depending on your readership and viewership, uh, hey, let's learn more about that. And, and again, uh, again, back to Dr. Deming, yeah. always finding experts. Uh, what, I think what, you know, thanks to you for setting this up, this has opened doors and connected dots through your viewership that we never could have done before. So I think they're going to come to you with ideas. Again, we've solicited the approach. I think the 
some of the solutions and potential opportunities that come from that. No, I, absolutely, absolutely no. And 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 again, I think that that idea these are universal principles, and every time I'm able to show an example, oh, it worked there too. Wow, look, you know, so. Um, yeah, certainly it's it's got a good foothold today in in you know really and technology and large running large data centers. So, yeah. Well, uh, John, if people wanted to sort of reach out to you or anything that you've published or like, well, how would they get a hold of you? Uh, go to my LinkedIn page. That's probably okay. the best way. Uh, and again, you see the spelling of my name there. It's actually got three A's in it: A-R-A-N-I-A-K. And uh, go to my LinkedIn page. Send me a message, and uh, there's quite a bit there. Uh, and some of the things, and I can send you anything and uh, answer you as well. If you get a certain reader or uh, viewer that you, uh, hey, we want to drill down on this or get us together on the show, I welcome that. And then uh, send us your ideas. Yeah, I yeah, know. I think it'd be great. All right. Well, then, um, thank you so much for this. This was okay. really uh, just um, really well, awesome. Yeah. Again, Deming would say, pass it on, right? That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Thank you. Yeah.